from Sector 001 in the Alpha Quadrant, this is the Omega Directive, a Star Trek podcast. Uh, Episode 16, I double-checked to make sure. The Worlds of J.A.R. Tolkien. Lives a brave little hobbit whom we all admire with his long wooden pipe, fuzzy woolly toes. He lives in a hobbit hole and everybody knows him. Bilbo, Bilbo Baggins, he's only three feet tall. Bilbo, Bilbo Baggins, the bravest little hobbit of them all. Now, hobbits are peace loving folks, you know. Okay, hi everyone. Welcome back to the Omega Directive. I'm your host, Steve Atwell, and joining me again is my co-host, Kevin, a.k.a. Dr. Guy K.S. Say hi, Kevin. Hi. And today uh, we are going to be chatting about... Today we're going to be chatting about the author J.A.R. Tolkien and the the Lord of the Rings, The Hobbit, and the Middle Earth. But before we get to that, we're going to spend a bit of time chatting about a few other things. So, um, hello, joy to you, Kevin. Hello, happy holidays. We are recording this at, it's about 1 o'clock on uh, November 24th, two days after Thanksgiving 2018, just about a week before my uh, birthday. And I wanted to say a few words about Thanksgiving and such, if if that's okay, and and uh, such not, there is because uh, I don't personally I don't really celebrate Thanksgiving so much as all that, um, mm-hmm. because of the uh, connotations of genocide of the Native American peoples and all. Mm-hmm. However, I do get together with loved ones, family, and friends. Yeah. Uh, to celebrate a somewhat secular experience. Exactly. Yeah. And uh, I reach into the world of Star Trek for uh, and find there the um, Bajoran uh, Gratitude Festival, which was explored mm-hmm. in uh, the Deep Space Nine episode, the okay. Deep Space Nine episode of Fascination, which uh, and uh, it is basically a Thanksgiving type of holiday because you do give thanks, as the name implies, Gratitude Festival. But you also, yeah. the Bajorans, uh, write down all of their troubles, all their worries, all their problems, and burn the papers, the ceremonial scrolls, to symbolically <laughs> free themselves of their burdens. And, of course, the Bajorans pray to the prophets. But um, it's a way of saying that I have hope and optimism that in the, in the next year, all these troubles will go away. Right. And I personally am happy with doing that sort of thing rather than getting caught up with, like I say. But so, Kevin, did you um, celebrate uh, Thanksgiving or anything similar yourself? Um, we sort of do. Um, for me personally, I we we get together as a family, and uh, mom made lasagna 
which isn't the traditional Thanksgiving holiday uh, dish. It's uh, what she does, and it's good. It's really good. Mm. Very moist and very delicious. Well, that's great. I My family is spread out and not as close as we were when we were younger. So mm-hmm. I tend to... You don't get... I tend to um, get together with friends rather than... I tend to get together with friends anymore. Uh-huh. Uh, loved ones here in the city. And, uh, you know, commune mm-hmm. with them. Because, like I say, I have a brother in Denver that I haven't seen in years. And he mm-hmm. always gets together with his uh, wife and her family. And my older brother, who's here in town... He gets together with his kids and grandkids, so I'm kind of left on my own, which is fine. Like right. I say, I do have friends. Yeah. But so having mentioned that, and we will talk uh, later um, about various other uh, nerdish type holidays and events that mm-hmm. take place uh, through the year and what we're going to be celebrating on the program. But for now, I wanted to also uh, mention the passing of Marvel Comics. Uh, writer, editor, guru, uh, Stan the Man Lee. Mm-hmm. And uh, I wanted to ask you, uh, Kevin, if you have any thoughts on, on uh, Stan and his legacy. Honestly, I'm not sure. I'm sorry to see his passing. I got to meet him one time, and, uh, you know, when he came to Kansas City and did Planet Comic Con, I, you know, I. I had good memories about that, and I've got a, you know, unfortunately I have a couple of bad ones. I, I won't mention them. Overall, though, uh, I grew up being a fan of the X-Men. Uh, I never got into the Avengers until the movies came out, or, you know, or at least until the movies came out. I, uh, I'm not a huge Spider-Man person, even to this day. I mean, I enjoy him. You know, I know he's there and uh, not enjoy. That's the wrong term. I, I know he's there. I've just never been a huge Spider-Man person. He just, you know, I don't know why. But the X-Men I latched on to, and they were a big influence for me for quite some time uh, when I was in grade school growing up all the way up to middle school. And... uh you know, I've seen all the X-Men movies except for some of the Logan spinoffs. And, you know, he he's... I don't think there are words to describe how big of an influence he is on our in our society, in our culture, um, as well as a few other foreign societies found throughout the world. I, I doubt there are a few people out there no, I take that back. I'm sure there are a few people out there who, you know, don't know of his influence and stuff. He's just, he defies words for me. And I mean that in a good way. He's just, you know, marvelous, as it were. And um, his passing has not gone, obviously, unnoticed. I I really don't, I really can't say anything. Um, maybe on some level it's not even real to me, you know, but it's, it's happened and the whole world has mourned for him and I don't know what else to say. I honestly don't. Yeah, I understand. I understand. Yeah. I, um, 
I have several friends who are comic book professionals, and mm -hmm. all of them uh, said pretty much the same thing. That Stan was one of the nicest, kindest, friendliest, outgoing people you can meet, most compassionate, caring people. But well, much like Star Trek's Gene Roddenberry, there have been people who compared him to Roddenberry because mm -hmm. uh, uh, Stan was known for, what's the word I'm looking for, supporting he said he always looks for an opportunity to create um, heroes for uh, minorities and to fight against bigotry. He was he was Jewish. He fought in World War II. He saw firsthand, well, knew firsthand about the atrocities yeah, that took yeah. place in Europe uh, at the time. And he fought bigotry and uh, prejudice every chance he got. And... Mm -hmm. This came through in his comics, in his stories, in his heroes, as much as you know Gene Roddenberry and Star Trek and Eddick and uh, inclusiveness and anti-bigotry uh, and such. But uh, much like Roddenberry, again, he was still human. He's this larger-than-life iconic figure, but he's still a human being. Yeah. And he was not without his flaws, and he was not perfect. And he was a complicated, conflicted individual within. And um, I know uh, that both, again, Lee and Roddenberry, well, there were some accusations that as much as they were giving people, still they weren't always as, um, what's the word, um, generous with sharing credit where credit was due and taking claim for some stories and characters that, and ideas that really weren't theirs. But all in all, the, I think that, yeah, the legacy of both of these these men, uh, it's a large shadow that it, it is going to be with us for a very, very long time. Right. Um, well... Go ahead. I'll, I will say this. Those accusations have been going on for quite some time, not with just him and Roddenberry, but also with, uh, you know, Shakespeare. That's the name I was looking for. William Shakespeare. People say that all the time. So I think it's when, I think it goes hand in hand when you get to a certain point in, uh, your fan, you, you know, in your fame, people are going to start making those accusations because they're, you know, jealous of your works. So whether it's true or not, it's irrelevant. It's the fact that the message is what pervades in the end. The the ideas that that are there, you know, who came up with those ideas shouldn't really matter. It's you know the fact that those ideas remain and are strong in our you know and try to be strong in our culture, especially in today's world, as we record this with all the hatred and open bigotry that there is now, it's something that we need to hang on to and we need to follow to the letter and not deviate from. So that way we can continue to persevere as people. Right, right. I agree. I agree. So bye-bye, Stan. Excelsior, you will be missed. Yeah. And moving right along, um, listeners of the program will note that we started off this episode, like I said, we are going to be chatting here uh, after a bit with 
a lady named Robbie Park, who is the she is the president of the local J.R. Tolkien uh, Society. And mm-hmm. um, I may have mentioned on the program before that for me, November is about Tolkien and the Hobbits and Lord of the Rings, going back all the way 40 years to my 10th birthday. But so we, I'm starting off this program this week um, with Leonard Nimoy's sublime uh, novelty tune, The Ballad of Bilbo Baggins. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted to chat a bit about um, Star Trek, music from Star Trek stars and uh, such. So, Kevin, have you yourself been exposed to some of the glory that is out there of music from Nimoy or Shatner or any of the others? Um, yeah, I actually did run across... Uh, uh, I saw a snippet of uh, the Bilbo, the Ballad of Bilbo Baggins, and I did watch it, um, you know... And for me, it, it it seems campy. I'm not sure if that was the intent or not, but at the same time, it's still good. And you know, it's it was well done and well made. And I don't remember who posted it on Facebook, whether it was you or one of my groups or what have you. But it, you know, I was surprised, and I was just like, at first, I'm like, this is way too much. And then I, you know, I I moved past that, and I'm like, this is actually pretty good and it's still kind of funny and campy and it was the 1960s which i think was the height as well as the creation of the campy endeavor but um i enjoy it it's it's nice and um it's actually pretty good i have the only shatner musical experience that i've had was watching futurama when he did a guest appearance with the other cast members of the original series. And uh, Nimoy frequented that, but uh, he did a spoken rendition of uh, the real Slim Shady by, I can't think of his name, Marshall Mathers, I think is his real name. And uh, Eminem. Eminem. Yeah, Eminem is his stage name. And so uh, that's that's really the only extent of it, of, you know, Shatner's music that I've encountered in my life. Oh, my young friend, I have just sent you a link to William Shatner's new Christmas album. Mm-hmm. And uh, hopefully you get a chance to listen to it soon. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have missed the glory uh, of... Did you ever see the episode of Family Guy... Where Stewie does the spoken word version, sort of singing of Rocket Man from Elton John. Yes. That was drawn directly from a uh, William Shatner rendition. Oh, nice. And um, they used to be generated here in Kansas City on the um, KCUR, the local NPR radio station affiliate, a program mm-hmm. called the Bad Music Hour. And yeah. they used to play Shatner and Nimoy and such all the time. And I can send you uh, clips, links to those um, albums, those songs. Uh, you haven't lived until you've heard his version of Rocket Man, his version of um, of um, Tambor- Mr. Tambourine Man or Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's, it's uh, worth listening to. Or Leonard Nimoy's version of Johnny Cash, I Walk the Line. Mm-hmm. 
every bit as enjoyable as one could expect. And I recently picked up a copy, finally, I've been looking for it for years, of the album Old Yellow Eyes is Back by Brent Spiner, which is him uh, singing a collection of standards. And on one of the tracks, hang on, give me a moment, let me look it up. One of the tracks is the song It's a Sin to Tell a Lie, which features as a backing as backing group, backing singers, uh, the Sunspots. And the Sunspots happen to be Patrick Stewart, Jonathan Frakes, Michael Dorn, and LeVar Burton. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not done at all for tongue-in-cheek silliness. It's done pretty straightforward. Right. But still, it's a strange little oddity to have. As soon as I get paid, I'm going to pick up Michelle Nichols' album, Out of This World, in which she sings a version of the Star Trek theme. Music, of course, by Alexander Courage. Lyrics by Gene Roddenberry. And she sings Uhura's theme, and she also sings a uh, a, a song called Gene, which is a, a tribute to um, Mr. Roddenberry, who passed away that year. And also on that album, she sings... Uh, Beyond Antares, the song that she sang as Uhura in the episodes Conscience of the King and Changeling. So there's right. a lot of this silly fun out there. And I want to do a survey of listening through Shatner's new album, but I want you to have a chance to listen to it yourself before we do that. And so we will do that at some point in the future. But let us real quickly mention that it is... Um, two days after Thanksgiving. And again, um, I tend to rather celebrate non-traditional holidays. I have a list of various nerdish and geeky type holidays throughout the year. And um, we on this program are going to be spotlighting and celebrating several of them as well. Just because, you know, just because we can. Um, right. And we'll get more into that here in a little while. Hello again, everyone. Welcome back to the Omega Directive, a Star Trek podcast. I am your host, Steve Atwell. And uh, with me, as usual, is my co-host, Kevin, a.k.a. Dr. Guy KS. And today we are going to be talking with a woman named Robbie Parks, who is the president of of the local J.R. Tolkien Society, Appreciation Society, to discuss Tolkien and his works and connections between Tolkien and Star Trek. Because, as I mentioned before, and I'll go ahead and mention again, I am a long-time Tolkien fan. And for me, November is all about Tolkien. My first exposure, 1977, late November, um, just around the time of my 10th birthday, ABC TV aired for the first time the animated feature link uh, film based on The Hobbit, uh, produced by Tolkien, uh, by um, Rankin and Bass. And the next year, at the theaters, um, was released the feature film animated um, Lord of the Rings from Ralph Bakshi, part of his um, fantasy trilogy. And then in 1980, in November, around my birthday again, was the animated 
uh, Return of the King. Uh, again, we're raking bass, and by this point, I was hooked. And it's been part of my uh, late November Thanksgiving birthday celebration every year to revisit Middle Earth, whether by watching the films, live action and animated, or reading the books, or both, or listening to one of the various audio adaptation recordings that has been done. So, I'm delighted to have the opportunity to chat about that with Tolkien fans. So, Robbie, please tell us a bit about yourself and your um, connection with uh, Tolkien. Sure, yeah. Uh, like a lot of people, um, same as, as yourself, I grew up uh, reading The Hobbit. That was, of course, my first exposure. I was about seven years old when I read it for the first time and then got into The Lord of the Rings. And then I started reading The Silmarillion in high school. And um, a few years ago, I decided to start my own uh, chapter of the Tolkien Society, which is here in Kansas City. And um, I actually now lecture on Tolkien uh, at Mid-Continent Public Libraries in the area. And uh, in, in fact, you said, you know, November is a, a really great time to think about Tolkien. And, and you're right for another reason, because, of course, of uh, the anniversary of the end of World War One of Armistice Day. And uh, so this month I've been doing a lot of lectures around the area uh, on Tolkien and especially on the, the Somme, which was the battle that he was in, him and C.S. Lewis also. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's a wonderful escape um, and it's great to be here talking about this today. And I love just talking about Tolkien with, with anybody, really. Uh, Kevin, are you much of a Tolkien fan yourself? Um, honestly, I, I never really got into it. I know of it and I know I saw the, the live action movies, but it, it never really appealed to me all that much. I know a lot of people shudder when they hear me say that, but it, it is in fact true, and I, I don't feel I want to mis misrepresent myself in that regards. I did enjoy the films, however. Um, I still haven't seen the Hobbit trilogy that Steve Jackson did, nor do I have I seen the original uh, Hobbit movies, uh, other versions yet, so I, I, I've missed those as well. Uh, Peter Jackson, not Steve Jackson. Steve Jackson was a game designer. Oh, Peter Jackson. I'm sorry. No, it's okay. We're going to try to educate you and bring you to the fold. Yeah, um, he's he's got a new movie coming out. Peter Jackson does, and I, I do want to see that one. It does look interesting, but we can discuss that some other time. Oh yeah, we're uh, the World War One uh, documentary with the actual footage that's been colorized. I thought it was the Mortal Engines, or is that another Jackson altogether? It's both. He he's he did the uh, the documentary about World War One um, uh, is uh, is already out, and uh, Mortal Engines is coming out soon. That's an adaptation of a, a young adult uh, series of books. It's supposed to be good. I've actually never read them, but but they're supposed to be quite good. Yeah, the movies look epic. A lot of CGI that looks well done. That actually looks like not like CGI at all. And that's kind of hard to do in this day and age. It's an epic undertaking. And so I can't wait to see that. Okay, something to look forward to. Um, so, Robbie, uh, let me ask you this. Um, how does one find the fortitude to cut through the Silmarillion? <laughs> uh, that is a really good question. Um, I will tell you that, that I myself failed at my first attempt of reading the Silmarillion because, of course, I read it in high school um, thinking that it would be more of something similar to the Lord of the Rings. And it, it was nothing like that, of course. 
now of course I've read it many times and actually I, it's it's probably my favorite book. Um, I, I can't decide, uh, but but I really love the stories in it and um, it. It's it's difficult to get through, but I think you have to approach it as something not related to The Hobbit or The Lord of the Rings. So you're kind of reading a totally separate thing because it wasn't actually until after Tolkien had written uh, a substantial like uh, his first draft of The Lord of the Rings that he realized that these worlds were actually connected. So so his first attempt at this, he had no idea that the Silmarillion was connected to The Hobbit or connected to The Lord of the Rings. He just sort of discovered it in the process of writing. Right, right. Yeah. So I would just recommend people not to just um, approach it like, this is great, I love The Lord of the Rings, I'll read more of The Lord of the Rings through this book. I wouldn't recommend that at all. <laughs> it's, it's a completely different uh, story. Yeah, I've tried cutting through it a number of times and didn't get very far at all, but then I had trouble initially with Lord of the Rings. So there's a scene in The Two Towers which was cut from the film but tacked on at the beginning of the Return of the King Extended Edition, where the, all we have in the book is a description of the devastation of, I want to say Osgiliath? No. Saruman's Tower. Oh, in Isengard. Isengard. Yeah, the, you're talking, the, the voice of Saruman, that chapter. Yeah, it was it was added onto the extended Return of the King. Yeah. yeah, and the book is just a description of the destruction itself, and it's it's Gandalf and um, Aragorn, Legolas, and um, Gimli, of course, riding through and seeing this devastation everywhere, and the passage just goes on and on and on in detailed description of the devastation, and mm -hmm. the first time I came to that passage, um, when I was 12 or 13, it took me two weeks to get through it. Just those three, four pages, two, three pages. Sure. And the second time I got through it, it took me a whole week. And now I can get through it. And, of course, it's kind of almost like a joke. They're marveling and wondering what on earth could have had the power to cause this much destruction. And they turn the corner and they see the two little hobbits. Hi, guys. What's up? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, some of his descriptions are really lengthy. Um, make no mistake about that. Actually, uh, my favorite chapter in the book it, as an adult is is the Council of Elrond. When I was a kid, I hated that chapter. I, I was like, why, is this keep, why does he keep talking about this stuff? I don't care about this. I want to move forward. I want to get to, you know, the Mines of Moria and all this other stuff. And um, I felt like that chapter just dragged on and on and on with just, just an excessive amount of exposition. And now I love it. Now I don't actually want that chapter to end because I just think it's so great. And I, I really feel like I've kind of changed how I um, how I view his descriptions and his descriptive writing style. Now I really enjoy it. But there are definitely passages in The Lord of the Rings, certainly, that um, I felt, at, at least when I was younger, just dragged forever. <laughs> Kevin, you haven't read any of this stuff, so you don't know. No, I'm I don't. Um, some of my friends back in grade school, they they read Ho the Hobbit, and somehow it just it just missed me, and it never again. I never really took a shine to it. That is not to say that I hate it. It's just you know I I feel my devotion to it isn't as strong as it is to other things. Well, well, let me ask you, Kevin. Um, what? Uh, were you, what, a uh, Harry Potter kid, or what did you grow up with in reading and all? I'm actually too old to have gotten into Harry Potter in grade school. 
I think I was into the X-Men comics more at the time. I think that was my thing, as well as Star Trek itself. So Star Trek, X-Men, those were my two big loves in grade school. In middle school, it was uh, Star Trek once again. Um, a couple other things that I can't really think of right now, I want to say that were there. I did get into the uh, Pokemon craze. I think that came out when I was in middle school. And uh, high school, oh gosh, it was Buffy the Vampire Slayer as well as Star Trek. Oh, I see, I see. Yeah, well, so those are my fandoms throughout the ages. Okay, well, um, Robbie, you mentioned uh, the First World War, which, of course, Tolkien was involved in, as was C.S. Lewis. Um, what do you know? I, I picked up a copy of the History of the Hobbit, and I know that it mm-hmm. was published several different times in different editions, and that changes were made in the text each time. Um, what do you know about how he came to write it and uh, what he meant, if he meant anything by doing so? What do I know about how he came to write it? Um, like the actual the, the Hobbit, like the book? Yeah. Well, it's kind of a famous story um, because, you know, yeah, he was in World War One and then he went back to Oxford. Um, so he he was he was in the Somme, it was very famously in the Somme and he fought in the Somme for over 60 straight hours, which is absolutely unthinkable to me now. But when he, by the time he got back to Oxford, most of his friends had been killed. Um, he was part of a, a society called the Teacup and Barovian Society, the TCBS, and they, they would write stories and, and read them out loud to each other. And that was sort of where he started working on his writing chops. Um, and, and C.S. Lewis would later on become kind of a, a member of that through a, another society called the Coal Biters. But um, regardless, uh, so he went back to Oxford, and a lot of his friends had been killed. And he was very lucky to eventually get a professorship at, at Oxford, um, in addition to working for the Oxford English Dictionary. And um, he would also, I mean, he wasn't really getting paid a lot for any of this stuff. And um, he uh, would grade papers as a way to supplement his income. And so very famously, he was grading exams. And there was an exam where the person could not produce an effective answer, and they just left a page blank. And Tolkien was gets to this blank page and for some reason, he writes a sentence, the sentence, uh, in a hole in the ground, there lived a hobbit. And he has no idea why he's written it. And so then he starts um, kind of pulling on the threads of that sentence and figuring out where that's coming from and, and why why he wrote it. And um, he would tell stories to his kids. Um, one of the famous compilations of this is the the Father Christmas Letters. He would, he would tell these stories about Father Christmas who lives at the North Pole with a polar bear and, you know, would would tell these crazy stories to his kids and made up like letters and stuff for them. Uh, but so then he started kind of creating the story of the Hobbit and telling it to his kids and then writing it. And then um, it, it ended up being um, sent off to the publisher, which is Alan and Unwin uh, that were interested in the story, especially uh, Stanley Unwin's boy, who was about 10 years old, read the manuscript of the Hobbit and loved it. And it got published through, I don't want to say luck. I mean, in some ways, it was luck that 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 the son of the publisher read the book and was interested and said, "Dad, this is a great story. I really like it. You should publish it. It's got like wizards and dragons and stuff, and it's really cool." Um, and at the time, the the Doctor Doolittle books were getting pretty popular, and so I think Alan and Unwin were also very interested in finding a series that could kind of um, compete with Doctor Doolittle because he had kind of these serial like one-offs. 
And so The Hobbit was like a huge success and they were hoping that this would turn into a serial. Um, and instead, uh, you know, they go back to Tolkien and they say, hey, do you have more Hobbit stories that you could write? And he says, no, I'm done with I'm done with Hobbits. I'm totally done with them. And um, they keep pushing him on it. And eventually he starts, you know, kind of hacking away at this concept that's if, if you're ever interested, you can read the, the this book series called The History of Middle Earth. And the first one is The Return of the Shadow. And it talks about the the writing process that Tolkien went through for creating The Lord of the Rings. And that's ultimately going to be the sequel to The Hobbit. Um, but but Alan and Unwin were not interested in um, like the Silmarillion, like they were not interested in any of his other stuff. They really wanted a Hobbit, too is what they wanted. They wanted a serial that could compete against Dr. Doolittle. And then um, they got something completely different 16 years after the fact, because it was going to take him 16 years to do it. Um, but, but the whole publication process is very interesting because it's almost like he kind of fell into it by accident, just getting this published and, and really just the luck of knowing Unwin's son. And then also um, very famously, some of the first reviewers for The Hobbit were C.S. Lewis and W.H. Auden. Who, who were becoming much more well-known authors at the time. And, and so that was also a huge boost to the image of The Hobbit as well. And so it ends up becoming just a, a really huge hit. Yeah, the story, uh, as I've had it, is that he and C.S. Lewis basically, and I'm going to jack this up, I know, but they basically decided between the two of them to try to like recreate or new religions um, or to uh, um, re-spark Christianity in new ways so they challenged each other and C.S. Lewis came up with the, the Chronicles of Narnia the line in which the wardrobe started and Tolkien came up with the, the Hobbit as a response do you know anything about that yeah so there was a really famous um, kind of wager between the two I mean there's a lot of sort of um, it's not 100% clear uh, so some of the events surrounding this this supposed wager that happened between the two of them. And the idea was that Lewis was going to write a fantasy story. And Tolkien originally thought, I'm going to write a time travel story. And um, he does. He, he writes a story that's called The Lost Road. And The Lost Road is going to become kind of like this germ uh, that will develop into um, the fantasy world that kind of is connected to um, Middle Earth and Arda. Arda is the planet uh, that Middle-earth is on. So it's like Earth, right? But but it's not called Earth, it's called Arda. And um, so he writes The Lost Road, but it never really goes anywhere. And, and just to briefly, um, the story in The Lost Road is that this, uh, there's a boy and his dad, and they, um, they end up on this road, and um, it goes into um, this fantasy world that's like this time before England that's kind of like this Arthurian England um, that he was more interested in. And um, he, he ultimately doesn't really do much with it. And you can still, you can buy The Lost Road right now, but it's not really in completed form. Um, and it's part of like an anthology collection. But that was his first attempt. But even then, it's like it wasn't, it's almost like it wasn't even a true time travel. I mean, it, it was, but but not quite. And, um, and and actually, now that I think about it, because I believe you mentioned Lewis writing Narnia, um, I, I believe in the wager that his the the actual part of the wager was writing out of the Silent Planet, which is the Ransom trilogy. Um, so now that I think about it, I think, I think I've, I've misremembered this. It was actually a science fiction was what he ended up writing. 
And then Tolkien is writing this time travel story that's really going to turn into fantasy. And then through that, he's going to connect it to this world that he's created in the Silmarillion. So what actually is the story in the Silmarillion then? Oh, boy. How long is this podcast? <laughs> okay. Okay. Um, now, I keep it, I keep it real brief. Um, but uh, so the Silmarillion is, um, I mean, a lot of times you hear people compare it as sort of like a, the Bible, because you have like Genesis, like you have the creation of the earth. So in the Silmarillion, the first part is about wait, the wait, creation. Wait, 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 wait. In the beginning, there was Erdu the One. Yes. Yes. That's I got right. I got that down. You got that. Yeah, exactly. The Ainu Lindale. Yeah. And uh, in that part, so it talks about, yeah, Iluvatar, Eru Iluvatar, the one who is like God with a big G. Um, so he, he creates... Arda ultimately, but th but first before he does that, of course, like any any god with a big G, you got to create your pantheon. So he goes through and creates these spirits that are going to eventually descend to Arda, and they're going to become the gods, and they're going to control like Olmo controls the seas, uh, Manwe controls the sky, and um, also controls like the eagles. So then there are like spirits that are below that. So like. You know, the king of the eagles is, is actually like a Maiar. So you have like these demigods. Um, then you've got demons, of course. You've got bad guys. you got to have bad guys. So so there's this sort of pantheon that's getting set up at the beginning of the Silmarillion. And then it goes through um, sort of your typical creation of the world kind of stuff. Like, okay, how, uh, how are we going to create light? You know, so initially um, when you have light uh, on, on Arda, on, on the earth, if you will, um, they have these lamps that they create. Well, the, so the lamps are like the sun and the moon, basically, but they're, they're lamps that are like these gigantic lamps that, that are physically on the earth. And then they get destroyed because that's what bad guys do. Bad guys show up and they destroy stuff. And that's Morgoth. Morgoth is the original bad guy. Um, that's always kind of how I try to get people interested in the Silmarillion. I tell them, hey, did you know there's somebody worse than Sauron? Because there totally is. He's way worse than Sauron. Um, and that's Morgoth. And... Um, so then he like comes and destroys the lamps and then they end up, then they make these trees that light up the world and then they get destroyed. And so then they make a sun and a moon. So that's like kind of your typical uh, creation myths of like how the world works. So there's a lot of very typical stuff like that. Um, and then they also have the, the awakening of the elves. So the elves are the first born race that are created. Um, and then you'll have men and dwarves and their creation stories, like how they were brought into being. And there's just this epic story that's kind of going to take place uh, after the creation of the elves that, that involves the Silmarils, which is where the Silmarillion, of course, gets its name. And there are these, these three epic jewels that have the light of the trees in them that, that, that lit up the world and all this stuff and people fighting over these jewels. And there's actually a, 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 the battle is called the War of the Jewels. And so all that goes through and then you... You have like the three great tales, which are excellent. And if you've never read the Silmarillion or you struggle to get through it, I do recommend reading the three great tales, which are now published separately. And those are the Children of Huron, uh, Baron and Luthien and um, the Fall of Gondolin. They've all been published separately now. Um, they're really, really good. And then um, it wraps kind of with because uh, it, it goes through the different ages. So then you have the third age. So that's when the Lord of the Rings takes place. So then it's going to have that. It's also got the downfall of Numenor in there. So, I mean, it's all these major things that really color in the context of the Lord of the Rings. 
So if you're interested in more context for The Lord of the Rings, The Silmarillion is a great book to read. Um, but that being said, it's it's not really like The Lord of the Rings, and it's definitely not like The Hobbit. Um, so it's it's very, very different in that regard. So uh, I couldn't help but interject. I have a question. Is this, would you say, this is their creation myth for Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit? Like, is this how their universe was created, in other words? Yes. Um, but I want to put a caveat on that because, so Tolkien started writing parts of the Silmarillion mm-hmm. when he was in the trenches of World War One. Okay. So The Hobbit, he's not going to write until about 36. Is it, mm-hmm. 35, 36 is when he's going to start writing it. And then The Lord of the Rings won't even come out until the 1950s. Okay. So it's interesting because he doesn't think that the Silmarillion is remotely related to the Hobbit. Uh, it has nothing to do with that. He has no clue, you know, that these things are related. So the Hobbit and the Lord of the, really the Lord of the Rings is the, is the point where he realizes, wait a minute, this is all the same earth. This is the same Arda. This is the same middle earth that I've been talking uh-huh. about. And there's actually a lot of evidence to suggest that, that, that he kind of realized in the writing process of The Lord of the Rings that um, he finally figured out that they were connected. So it is an origin story of like, you know, a creation story of, of, of the world and everything. But I, I always kind of caution that he didn't realize that. He didn't figure it out until the 1940s that they were connected, uh, which is weird because you just kind of assume that they're, well, yeah, he just wrote it and it's all connected and he knew what he was doing. He, he was totally discovering it. While he's yeah. writing it, yeah. Okay, well, that's oh. interesting. Yeah. Okay. So, another question I have, and I mentioned I have read The Hobbit a number of times, and Lord of the Rings, and all the appendices at the back of The Return of the King, and I've also read part of the unfinished tales. I've picked up The Adventures of Tom Bombadil. Mm-hmm. And have been reading through that, um, slowly but surely. But so far, I haven't come across the, the origin of the rings themselves. I'm not sure. I know uh, seven for the um, dwarf lords, three for the elven kings, etc. But right. who, who forged all of these rings and distributed them amongst these peoples and gave one to Sauron? Okay, so <laughs> I, this we have an hour, right? No, <laughs> sorry, it's just uh, this, so much to say. Um, okay, um, Sauron is a spirit, uh, is is a demigod, is really what he is. Okay, he's a Maiar, is what it is. Is technically he's he's a subclass of of Morgoth. Morgoth, was, who I mentioned, is the bad guy in the Silmarillion. Morgoth is um, not going to be around in the Lord of the Rings. So Sauron is is the bad guy, right? So mm-hmm. he's, from from having been the lieutenant of Morgoth for thousands of years, is very interested in power and maintaining power and all this stuff. Um, now, he becomes interested in ringsmithing, which is a very odd hobby to have as a, as a demigod. It's like, why ringsmithing? Um the matter of jewelry and sort of smithing ha- has an incredible significance. Actually, if you examine the Silmarillion and uh, the Lord of the Rings in particular. So um, 
for one thing, when Sauron was originally created, when he came into being, when he was um, created at the beginning of the Silmarillion as a spirit, his real name was Myron. And um, he was actually a spirit devoted to Aule. Aule was the smithing god. So there's a big connection right there, just by the fact that when Sauron was first created, he wasn't evil. He, he, was, he had a different name. And he was devoted to the smithing god. It's like, okay, that's cool. Well, then he becomes attracted to power that Morgoth, the bad guy, has, the, the big bad god, the antagonist of the entire Silmarillion. He becomes interested in power. So he becomes more devoted to Morgoth, and he becomes a bad guy. He renames himself Sauron. Um, and one of the reasons why I'm bringing this up is because, so first of all, he was, de he was devoted to the smithing god. Morgoth became very, very interested in the Silmarils, which are jewels, and he became interested in, in smithing himself. And actually, he steals the Silmarils, spoiler alert, he steals the Silmarils, and these jewels cause all these wars and strife and stuff. And the Silmarils were made by an elf named Feanor. So Feanor made these jewels. Morgoth started coveting them. He wanted them, so he breaks in, he steals them, and he puts them in the iron crown. He puts one of them in the iron crown that he wears, and he like is lord of the underworld and all this really cool stuff. Anyway, so Sauron is devoted to this guy now. So we have like this big connection in terms of smithing and stuff. So then, in the Lord of the well, prior to the Lord of the Rings, Sauron, you know, is is now the the head bad guy because uh, Morgoth has disappeared for reasons I won't get into because that would be a big spoiler alert. Sauron is now the bad guy, and he wants to control all of the Earth, and he becomes interested in creating stuff. And so he wants to create rings. He wants to, he wants to learn how to smith. So he ends up becoming or befriending-ish the cousin of Feanor, the guy who smithed and created the Silmarils. His cousin is named Celebrimbor. And I have no idea if you have played um, uh, The Shadow of War, if either of you are into video games very much, but there, there's actually a, a, a video game called The Shadow of War um, that's all about this, and Celebrimbor is involved in it. But anyway, um, so that there's like some kind of pop culture references uh, been recently with Celebrimbor. But, um, so Celebrimbor is a smith, and he knows how to smith rings. He smiths the three elven rings that are described in the poem, right, that we're talking about. We're talking about the poem at the beginning of the book of the Lord of the Rings. Um, he smiths the three elven rings, and that's actually why Sauron can't control them. So Sauron learns this. He learns this technique from Celebrimbor, and he's – the reason why, because you're probably like, why would an elf teach Sauron how to do anything? That's always my question. It's because Sauron was actually um, presenting himself, like, as, as a different person. He was pretending that he was an elf named Anatar, and he was lying about who he was. And people were very suspicious of him, including Galadriel. She's like, I'm not buying this. But Celebrimbor is like, ah, he seems like an all right guy. I mean, what could possibly go wrong me teaching him how to smith rings, right? So he, he teaches him how to smith rings with magical powers, and those are the three elven rings. So then Sauron makes his own rings after he's learned that skill, and he actually kills Celebrimbor. Um, spoiler alert. So that's how he learns that power and then creates those rings and then creates the one ring, of course, that's supposed to master all of them. Um, but the thing is with the elven rings, because he never touched them, the bearers of the elven rings know when he's trying to control them and they'll act, they can actually just take them off. 
Um, but, but the rings do have their own unique powers. And actually, um, one of the reasons that, you know, um, so the, the three Elvish rings are born initially by, um, Kyrdan, the shipwright who's out in the gray havens where people depart to go into the West, uh, Elrond in Rivendell and then Galadriel, um, in Lothlorien. And that's why those three places actually seem to be almost out of time or like time slows down and um, things are just different there. And it's because there's a bearer of an elven ring there that has this specific, you know, unique power. Um, But yeah, so that's kind of how he learns smithing. Um, And but like I said, there's a great tradition of sort of jewelry causing wars, honestly, um, in in the Silmarillion. Um, There's there's actually a number of other pieces of jewelry, like the Nauglamir is this magnificent necklace that caused the fall of uh, Doriath, which is a major uh, elven kingdom in the Silmarillion. Um, It's all connected, I think, to the Silmarillion, which is funny to me that, that that's obvious now, but it was not obvious to Tolkien at the time. But he was still kind of working out the magical powers of the ring. So when he wrote The Hobbit, he didn't know that that was the one ring. He just thought it was a magic ring. That's all it was. Yes, and I know that in the original um, edition of the book, uh, Gollum Smeagol just gave the ring to Bilbo. Right. That's the first edition. Yep, he he volunteered because he lost the bet. He lost the riddle game. And so then he voluntarily says, yeah, I'll just give you the ring. So then in in other editions, they had to fix that. And it's funny because Tolkien actually had an explanation for why that is because everything is still so – like he has to reconcile everything and make it work. And so people, of course, are like, well, why is it different in the first edition? And he says, well, because Bilbo lied about how he got it. So the first edition is Bilbo lying. It's not that I made a mistake. It's that Bilbo lied. And so in the subsequent editions, it's correct, because then he found out the truth. <laughs> wow. So he's got all these ways to like reconcile everything and make sure it's correct. It's great. Yeah, <laughs> no, I, I've. I've done similar situations myself. I do it all the time with uh, while watching, you know, some of my favorite shows. Sure. Um, uh, retconning talk. in process. Yeah, you're retconning. Yeah, yeah. Exactly, exactly. Uh, the first thing that pops into my mind after hearing all of that is uh, the eighth, uh, the Doctor Who movie that they did with the eighth Doctor, and how the TARDIS said the uh, Time Lord was half human, half Time Lord. And in my mind, I'm like, yeah, the TARDIS is lying on that one. 100%. So it's interesting to see that other people out there do the same thing, too. Sorry, I'm just babbling at this point. No, that's okay. Um, So I don't really need to read. Okay, so my question then would be these stories of Sauron and the forging of the rings. Where is that found? Is that in the Silmarillion or the Unfinished Tales or where? Um... You'll find any of the stuff about Celebrimbor and sort of that that early explanation and story, that's going to be in the Silmarillion, and you'll probably find it. Um, I should have should have had my copy of the Silmarillion sitting out. Um, you'll find it mostly at the end, uh, talking about uh, the uh, – what is the name of that chapter? Of the Rings of Power and the Coming of the Third Age. That's the chapter that it's in. Um I would actually recommend if you're not interested in reading the Silmarillion, but you want to get a little more backstory on the Lord of the Rings, I would recommend reading the final two sections, which is the Akalabeth, which is about the fall of Numenor, and then uh, of the Rings of Power and the coming of the Third Age. But you'll you'll mostly find that stuff about Sauron. Uh, or if you're if you're interested in Sauron in general, you may enjoy the Akalabeth um, because it's about the destruction of Numenor 
and sort of how men came to arrive in Middle Earth. Um, but yeah, it's it's really good. It's really really good. Okay, let me clear this up just once and for all. I am interested in reading. I've just had a hard time <laughs> cutting through it. I feel like sure. in the old uh, you know Tarzan movies, I need some guides with some machetes to go ahead of me and cut the bramble out of the way so I can figure out where I'm going. Absolutely. And yeah, believe me, it's, I actually think reading the Silmarillion, it's, um, it's best if you know someone who's read it because you, you may start off being like, what is going on here? Um, but if you talk to someone, they may be able to kind of give you some, some insight on that. Um, but it's, it's really worth reading, but if you can't start there, I would always say at least read like a Calabeth and then the third age chapters. Cause that's by far the most relevant to the events of the Lord of the Rings. Okay. Okay. Another question I have is regarding the dwarves. And I have read, uh, like I say, in the unfinished tales, um, uh, the story of how Thorin and Thrain and um, Thor and Durin and how the ring or the, the, the key and the, the map came to Gandalf. But my question regarding the dwarves is, is it not true that another name for Durin was Sleepy and that the seven dwarves who received the rings were Sleepy, Happy, um, Dopey, Doc, and Bashful? No. <laughs> no way. You know Tolkien hated uh, Disney, right? <laughs> I know, but there's the 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 uh, come across fan theory that yeah. <laughs> Snow White is the sequel because for goodness sakes, these Loken sound act just like Tolkien dwarves and um anyway um let me see what else did I want to uh, ask about so in order to fully have the background laid down for Hobbit and Lord of the Rings, I really don't need to read the full. Um, Summerell, just the last few chapters. If that's mostly what you're interested in, I'd say, yeah, just go ahead and start with that. And then you can work your way backwards if you like. But yeah, it, it can be dense, for sure. <laughs> Might make it a bit easier. Um, Kevin, do you yeah. have any other questions at this time? None that I can think of. Okay, I want to spend a bit of time chatting about some of the adaptations that have been done of the the works and uh robbie i don't know how many you're familiar with how many you've uh watched or listened to oh uh, yeah i i grew up with rankin and bass and the uh bakshi lord of the rings that was you know when i was a kid i thought oh they'll never make a movie out of the lord of the rings um and then uh when i was i think i was a senior in high school when the first one came out uh the when the fellowship of the ring came out I'm not sure about that and then I've I've also listened to the BBC adaptations. I've listened to the book books on tape of all of them. Um, so I mean I'm pretty familiar with with all of the adaptations. I've seen the Hobbit trilogy once, but yeah, I'm I am pretty familiar with the most of the adaptations. I think. Yeah. Okay. And you're are you familiar with back in the 1960s, a certain uh, uh, foursome from Liverpool, England, uh, yes. known collectively <laughs> as the Beatles, had an interest in making a film out of the Lord of the Rings with Ralph, with uh, Stanley Kubrick as the director, but it didn't get off the ground. Yeah, I am aware of that. Um, I'm pretty, as a big Beatles fan myself, um, I'm actually pretty grateful that nothing ever came of that. Um, it just it seems terrible. So. <laughs> yeah. John Lennon was, would have been Gollum. <clears throat> 
Paul McCartney would have been Frodo, and Ringo Starr would have been Sam, and George Harrison would have been Gandalf. Of course, they also wanted to do uh, have themselves star in a feature of the uh, Three Musketeers plus D'Artagnan, which, again, thankfully didn't come to fruition, perhaps. Yeah, yeah, seems a little odd. <laughs> okay, for those that don't know, yes, there was... In 1968, uh, BBC Radio um, produced an audio series based on The Hobbit, and the cast included Anthony Jackson as the, the talebearer or narrator. Bilbo was played by Paul Danaban. Francis DeWolf was Smaug, the dragon. John Justin was Thorin, and Heron Carvick was Gandalf. Leonard Fenton as the Elven King, and uh, John Pullen as Elrond, and Wolf Morris as Gollum. Uh, and you have listened to that, you say? Uh, yeah, the Hobbit one I've listened to only once. I the, for the BBC adaptation, I've listened to the Lord of the Rings BBC adaptation several times, and that one's got Ian Holm as Frodo, of course, which is how he came to be Bilbo in the films. But yeah, I've listened to that as well. Yeah. Yeah, in 1977, apart from the animated classic from Rankin and Bass, which is one of my favorites, there was also, on the BBC Television television Network, they did a live-action adaptation for a part of their children's series, Jack and Nori. And, Kevin, you might be interested to note that the host of the Jack and Nori program was the actor um, Bernard Krebens, who is best known for to Doctor Who fans, for playing uh, Wilfred Mott um, in recent years, Donna Noble's grandfather. Yes. I can't find anything about the cast of that program, but for the live act, for the animated program, of course, that was on ABC television in my first introduction to it all, we had a great character actors. Um, Orson Bean was Bilbo, and he's still alive and kicking, and he's in his 90s and good for him. Richard Boone, who had been... Um, uh, the character Paladin, the lead on the uh, cult 50s uh, Western series, Have Gun Will Travel, was the voice of Smaug. And I joke that, um, and uh, Robbie Lee should appreciate this, turns out that uh, Pippin's father sounded just like Smaug the Dragon. <laughs> uh, Hans Conried was Thorne Oakenshield. John Huston, the great uh, filmmaker, uh, director, writer, actor, was Gandalf. Aldo, Aldo Preminger was um, threat. And why? At the time he wrote The Hobbit, he didn't have a name for the Elf King. Is that why he's not referred to as Thranduil in the book at all? Uh, yeah, it was something like yeah, you couldn't decide on a name or yeah, I forget now. Um, but yeah, I think it was just he couldn't decide on it and wanted to keep it sort of vague in like a children's story kind of way, like just referring to him as the Elf King. <laughs> right. And why is it that he didn't have um one of the rings? Why did it uh, not go to him? Um. Well, because well, because a different Elf Lord got it, and that's Elrond. Elrond got it. Um, and I think it's a little more fitting that Elrond has it for, for reasons I won't get too deep into, but um, Elrond is, is descended from Yarendel the Mariner, who's a major character in the Silmarillion, who's half-elf and half-man. Um, 
I think it makes more sense for Elrond to have it. And, I, and specifically, I don't know why the Elf King didn't, the Elven King didn't have one at the time. I mean, other than, well, there's just three rings. So, I mean, Elrond would have one, Galadriel would have the other, and then Círdan had that one. And then Círdan actually is going to give it to Gandalf. Um, so Gandalf is, is a bearer of a ring, um, of the, the Ring of Fire, in fact. Yeah. Yeah, I would have thought that Thrandy will have had it instead of Círdan. I like, that's one of my favorite bits in there, is that Gandalf is a fire elemental in Dungeons & Dragons terms. And yes, yes, yes. Uh, he, they go into um, um, Fanghorn Forest, Fanghorn Forest, Fanghorn, and he says, you know, tells the guys, uh, be very respectful, don't harm anything here, you know, don't mess with the, the the trees or any of the forest, and then as soon as they're attacked, he throws a chain fireball around. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. <laughs> that's beside the point. And the animated Hobbit, um, Cyril Richard was Elrond, and uh, Brother Theodore was Gollum. Brother Theodore, for goodness sakes, was a comedian. He had a fascinating life story. His family managed to escape uh, to America during the Second World War because his mother was the mistress of one Albert Einstein. And he got them to come over. And I remember back in the 80s watching Brother Theodore pop up numerous times on David Letterman's show, and he was funny, 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 funny. But he died uh, some 30 years ago. He would be well into his hundreds by now. Um, Also, in 77, NPR here in the U.S. uh, radio, one of their um, uh, subdivisions, the uh, uh, Mind's Eye Theater, um, did an adaptation of The Hobbit, and I can't seem to find a listing of the cast for that right now. Hmm. But in 1979, they did a adaptation of The Lord of the Rings, and in the cast for that, we had Ray Reinhardt as Bilbo, James Arrington as Frodo, Pat uh, Franklin as Mary, Mac McCodden as Pippin, Lou Bliss as Sam. And I think it's fascinating that they cast women to play Mary and Sam. No one else really of note, I don't think, in the cast for that program, but it is well worth listening to for those that have not listened to those. Uh, um, Of course, the film from Ralph Bakshi featured uh, the voices of Christopher Gard as Frodo, William Squire as Gandalf, John Hurt as Aragorn. Yes, John Hurt is my favorite Aragorn. Mine as well. If you can believe that. <laughs> Mine as well. And um, Kevin, of course, you as a Doctor Who fan, if you don't know uh, John Hurt from anything else, you should know him as the War Doctor from Doctor Who. Right, I do. I remember seeing him. I've seen him in other things too, but I can't think of it right now. Yeah, also Alien. Alien was going to be my big shout-out to John Hurt for sure. <laughs> yeah, and of course, around that same time, he also did the voice of Hazel in the animated classic of uh, Watership Down. Oh, right, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Simon Chandler was Mary, Dominic Gard is Pippin, um, Norman Bird was Bilbo. Now, Michael Anthony Graham, Michael Graham Cox was Boromir, and Peter Woodthorpe was Gollum, and the two of them uh, later reprised those roles in the BBC radio production of The Lord of the Rings. The only other actor I want to mention 
in the Bakshi film was as Legolas, are you ready for this? A certain British actor named Anthony Daniels, who is perhaps best known to everyone in the world for being the voice for some 40 years now of C-3PO, the protocol droid from um, Star Wars. And like I mentioned, this was the second in a trilogy from Ralph Bakshi of fantasy films, the first being 1977's Wizards. And the only um, thing I'll mention about that real quick is that one of the cast members of Wizards as the Elf King is um, Anthony Daniels' Star Wars co-star Mark Hamill. But that's beside uh, the point. Let me move on. The uh, 1979 radio series, I already mentioned that from the what have you. Um, but then the BBC uh, radio production, 1981, which gave us uh, Frodo, uh, Ian Holm as Frodo, Michael Hordern as Gandalf, Richard Stevens as Aragorn, and Bill Nye, not Bill Nye the science guy, Bill Nye as Sam, and of course, um, Bill Nye has made a name for himself in more recent years. He was in the Doctor Who episode about Van Gogh. He was the uh, curator at the museum. Yes. Yeah, oh, it's such a good episode. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I won't mention too much of the rest of the cast because I don't think there's anyone there of note that people listening might recognize. But I highly recommend getting a hold of all of these, which I have done. And I also have the... Uh, Nicole Williamson did an audiobook version doing all the voices of The Hobbit. And Nicole Williamson, for those that don't know, was in the Doctor Who episode, The Doctor's Daughter, as the general who's in charge of uh, the planet the Doctor's on. I don't have that information pulled up before me, and I can't remember the character's name. But he was also uh, King Arthur in Excalibur, and uh, that's worth listening to as well. So, just so folks know, there are uh, several different adaptations that have been done over the years in English. There are also adaptations that have been done in Czechoslovakian and uh, German and such over the years. The first actual attempt at a Hobbit adaptation was a 1966 short animated film from, again, it was a Czechoslovakian direction, but it didn't quite get done. So, uh, anyway, and of course, in Peter Jackson's film, we had, um, well, the cast is well-known. I just mentioned, uh, as a, again, as a Star Trek connection, John Reese davis who was on Voyager episodes playing the holographic representation of Leonardo da Vinci. I can't think where else my brain was trying to go with all that. Anyway... Kevin, do you have any more to add to the conversation at this point? No, I'm just basically listening to everything. Um, I don't have much to say because, again, this isn't one of my major fandoms. And so I'm just learning about things as we go along, and some things I recognize, some things I don't. So uh, I'm just happy listening right now. Oh, before I forget, I do want to mention from the cast, from the animated um, Rankin, Rankin Bass, um, Return of the King. And of course, uh, Rankin Bass, before they did The Hobbit, they were best known for doing all the Christmas specials like Rudolph and um, yeah. uh, Frosty the Snowman, The Year Without Santa Claus. But the uh, animated uh, Return of the King, again, Orson Welles was this time as Frodo, 
And um, Sam Gamgee was played by Roddy McDowell, the great from Planet of the Apes and several other productions. Um, and again, Brother Theodore was Gollum. But here we also had into the mix William Conrad, who is a well-known deep-throated <laughs> actor, as uh, Denethor, and actor uh, Theodore Bikel as Aragorn. And Star Trek fans would know Theodore Bikel from playing Worf's uh, adopted human father, uh, Sergei Roshenko, as seen at the episode Family of TNG. Otherwise, the only other person to note from that cast was Casey Kasem as Mary. Uh, and that, I tell you, that is barely scratches, that film barely scratches the surface of the book, The Return of the King. Yeah, it's pretty bad. <laughs> and, I mean, uh, Legolas and Gimli aren't even in it. <laughs> yeah, it's a total mess. <laughs> but for the completists out there, watch it at least, you know. Anyway, I think we're about done here. Kevin, do you think we should give her the... Well, let me ask, uh, Robbie, are you a Star Trek fan yourself at all? Um, you know, I grew up watching the original series and then watching some of TNG um, when I was a kid. I, I watched some of that, um, but uh, uh, honestly, I haven't seen it in years. It's been quite a time, so... Are you a music fan yourself? Yes, yeah, absolutely. Okay, uh, I'm going to go ahead and give you Stevie's Treff, but not too tough, Star Trek Trivia Challenge. Oh, boy. This is not going to end well, but okay. It'll be fun. It's five questions. Um, if you get three of them right, you will win the right two. You will win. You will have the chance to impress your friends and embarrass your children with your trivial knowledge. And okay. <laughs> if you get all five right, there will be a sixth final bonus question for double or okay. nothing stakes. Okay. Oh, okay. Question one. Before being cast as... Dr. Beverly Crusher on The Next Generation, actress Gates McFadden was a well-known choreographer in Hollywood who worked frequently with Jim Henson and the Muppets, including doing the choreography for the 1986 fantasy musical film Labyrinth. What pop culture musical icon, also known as the Star Man, was the star of Labyrinth? Oh, thank goodness. It's David Bowie. <laughs> That's correct. Okay. Question number two. Bernie Casey co-starred, uh, guest starred in the two-part Deep Space Nine episode, The Maquis, as Lieutenant Commander Cal Hudson. Earlier in his career, he had co-starred in the 1976 cult sci-fi fantasy film, The Man Who Fell to Earth. What pop culture musical icon known as the Star Man was the star of The Man Who Fell to Earth? <laughs> Wait, known as the Star Man? The Man Who Fell to Earth? Wait, I don't understand the question. <laughs> what, is, what is the question? Can you restate the... I don't understand the question. <laughs> Hello? Oh, there I am. I'm sorry. I hit the mute uh -oh. button. Who was the star of the film The Man Who Fell to Earth? Well, it's David Bowie. That's correct. Okay, I, sorry. I guess I'm confused because David Bowie's been the answer twice now. <laughs> shh, shh, shh. Just play along. Okay. I was suspecting a pattern. <clears throat> Please continue. Question number three. Oscar award-winning uh, makeup artist turned graphic illustrator Doug Drexler, who worked on all the Star Trek series of the 80s and 90s, got his career working makeup on the 1981 fantasy, er, fantasy horror film The Hunger. What pop culture icon co-starred in The Hunger? 
I'm going to go with David Bowie. That's it. That's correct. Wow. Wow. I can't believe it. Question four. In the 1981 film, Star Trek, uh, The Undiscovered Country, featured the um, Ethiopian model turned actress Iman. Who was Iman married to? David Bowie. <laughs> and final question. Uh, the fifth question. Iggy Pop appeared in the Deep Space Nine episode, The Magnificent Ferengi, as the Vorta Yogren. <clears throat> what pop culture icon collaborated with Iggy Pop on uh, numerous songs and albums, excuse me, numerous recordings during the 70s and 80s, including the top 40 hit, China Girl? Ooh. Is it Ziggy Stardust? I mean, David Bowie? That's correct. David Bowie. Wow. Okay, final question for all the marbles. What pop culture musical icon known as Starman never appeared in Star Trek himself, but should have? <laughs> Definitely David Bowie. That's correct. You win. Oh, right. Oh, I can't wait to tell my friends. This is great. I'm sorry. Okay, well, that's it. Thank you for participating, having fun with us. I hope you had a good time. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. It's been great uh, talking about this and... Uh, you know, yeah, I'd love to. I'd love to come do it again sometime. If anyone out there listening um, is interested in joining, is in the Kansas City area and interested in joining the Tolkien Society, uh, where can they find it on on the web? Yeah, so we have a Facebook page. It's Tolkien Society, uh, the Tolkien Society of Kansas City, and uh, we also have uh, an email. It's Tolkien Society KC at gmail dot com, and you can also find us on Twitter. Uh, the Twitter handle is at Tolkien KC. And do we have any uh, upcoming events? Yeah, absolutely. Um, our next meeting is actually this upcoming Friday. We meet at Minsky's uh, on uh, Main Street. It's downtown, just up the road from the Plaza Library. Um, I will be lecturing at the North Oak Public Library uh, this Monday night, talking about Tolkien and World War One. And um, we've got Hobbit Christmas coming up. It's a great time to come uh, join us and eat a lot of food, watch uh, one of the adaptations. I won't say which one. And uh, just just have a really great time hanging out with people. And then we'll have our toast to the professor, which happens every year on his birthday, which is January 3rd, at an Inklings Books and Coffee Shop out in Blue Springs. So definitely give us a shout out on social media, send us an email, and we're happy to hook you up with that stuff. And, you know, you can sign up for our monthly newsletter if you want. But society's totally free. Please, you know, come join us if you're interested. Okay. As I understand, the Tolkien Society is actually an international uh, group. That was yes. started way, way, way back in the 30s. Uh, in the, in the, well, in the 60s is when it was properly started. Now I can't speak to other groups before that, but the formal society started in the 60s. And as I understand it, one of the founding members was actor Christopher Lee. Correct. Yeah, he was he was the only one who uh, met Tolkien. He's the only one who 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 had, who had met him of the cast. Yeah. And Christopher Lee, of course, total nerd, believe it or not. Oh yeah. And uh, as I understand it, when he heard that there was going to be a Tolkien film uh, made of The Lord of the Rings, he sent Peter Jackson a picture of himself in wizard uh, gear saying, I want to be Gandalf. But, of course, uh, Jackson already had his mind set on McKellen. Actually, I think he wanted to have Sean Connery, but Connery turned him down. Yeah, so, yeah, it's kind of famous, well, I don't know how famous it is, famous story, but yeah, Connery uh, apparently didn't understand it, 
And he was like, I don't know what this is. I don't want to do it. And I mean, he was already kind of basically retired at that point. And supposedly Christopher Lee, I mean, there was interest in him playing Gandalf, but part of the problem was that there were some some stunts that were going to be required of him that he couldn't do. So um, they decided that he would be a better Saruman um, and cast him that way instead. Because um, you have to remember, I mean, Christopher Lee was in his 80s when he was making those movies. It's hard to believe, you know, but um, but yeah, he couldn't do some of those stunts, so he ended up being Saruman. Yeah, and um, he basically... So he had gotten a hold of him and said, I want to be in your movie. And Peter Jackson's reaction was, are you kidding? Christopher Lee, yes. But he says, I want to hold it and said, "Uh, okay, maybe, but she has to come audition. And then Christopher Lee insisted on doing the audition in Elvish. (laughs) That sounds about right. That I had not heard, but it would not shock me at all because he was a passive geek. Yeah. Yeah. And, of course, when uh, the Hobbit adaptation came around, Christopher Lee was asked to be to reprise, and he told uh, Jackson that, well, due to my age and health, I'm not sure that I can travel to New Zealand and back, so maybe not. So uh, Peter Jackson shut down the production and moved it to London just so he could get him in the movie. I am not surprised at all to hear that. I mean, you couldn't. It couldn't be anybody else. You know, it's like you you have to do it. You have to. You'd have to go to him. You know. Yeah, rule of thumb. If you can get him, do it. Exactly. Um, okay, uh, if I may, I I know there is supposedly a fan cut of the Hobbit trilogy, which just which cuts out most everything with Azog and uh, the orcs, and just makes it pretty much straight the book, which clocks in at about three hours. I haven't seen that. I'm looking for it, but maybe you could show that if you get a hold of it. Yeah, I actually have not seen that either, but I'm also aware of um, – I've seen the uh, the fandom edit. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but somebody re-edited uh, the, the Phantom Menace uh, to make it a shorter, like much more concise story, and it's a much better movie. And uh, that same person has been going through, I think, and doing each of the Star Wars prequels. And um, so I, I was not surprised to hear about the Hobbit recut. And uh, apparently, yeah, it gets rid of all the stuff with Azog. And then I heard it got rid of all the stuff with um, Toriel with the love story with the dwarf. So that's so that's a huge improvement. Um, but uh, but yeah, I, I would really very much like to see that at some point just to see how they, you know, how they fix it, if you will. Right. OK, well, I'm going to let you go. Um, thank you so much. And I look forward to speaking to you again, either at an event or maybe we'll have you on next year to celebrate Durin's Day or something. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, well, thank you, Steve, very much for having me on. And thank you, Kevin. Also, I apologize for uh, probably boring you in this podcast, but I really appreciate uh, talking to you guys. (laughs) I was definitely not bored. Okay, thanks so much. And uh, uh, sign off, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, Have a good day, and uh, don't take any wooden quatloos. (laughs) Bye-bye. Bye. (laughs) Bye.